Father, your assignment for me today is one of great privilege to help people applaud you by using the truth of Scripture and the power of our intellect and our spirit that's sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Thank you today, Lord, that we have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In advance, Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that's possible through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is sitting in between every chair and resting on the shoulders and dwelling the hearts of those who grieve, those who ache, and we bring to you, Lord, those things which are mountainous, far greater than we can handle. Our fears, our heartaches, Lord, still unresolved some of these things we're thinking about. We ask for merciful endings, conclusions that are filled with grace. Would you write beautiful stories where we've messed them up? Lord, would you write with a pen that's filled with the blood of Christ, guided by the hand of the Spirit? And would the last words of the last chapter say, to the glory of God the Father, who never gave up? That is our hope. So, Lord, now we pray for the nations. Don't have access to this gym, these microphones and instruments. Worshiping at risk of life, valued so much by you, yet is your will, Lord, that they have little on earth for just a time, just a few seconds in eternity. Thank you that you'll reward them with the throne of Christ. But today, is because they're our brothers and sisters, we labor with them for their hurt, for their struggle. Feed them, clothe them. And may they know, as more than ever, the, the love of Christ, the wide, long, high, deep love of Christ. Free them from chains where that will bring you glory. Bring them home to heaven where that will bring you glory. May their guards and their captors and their persecutors come to Christ always. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, graduate Priscilla. I want to begin my sermon today by reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, because I want to begin with uh, verses from Scripture, because the rest of the message does not include a lot of Scripture. Uh, I'm explaining to you today why we gave the graduates the book that we did, Christ or Chaos, by, by Dan DeWitt, and uh, a wonderful, simple, brief apologetic to help them increase their confidence that Christianity is a very rational uh, description of the beginning of the universe and the purpose of mankind and the end of all things. But because I myself may get lost in the tall grass of apologetics and you may be you may be lost as well by the time I'm done. Let me at least succeed at the beginning by giving you Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw that it was good. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, their voice goes out into all the earth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, making wise the simple. I gave them my laws. The person who obeys them will live. In the beginning was the Word. Through him all things were made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is risen. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And if you want to look up those verses later, they're found in that collection again from the beginning to the end of the Bible. G.K. Chesterton said there are two ways to get home. One is to never leave. And two is to walk around the world until you come back. These students are about to make a decision of whether or not they are going to leave their spiritual roots and walk around the world and see if they can make their way back home or they're going to hang on their spiritual roots while they're at their four years of college. The majority of high school students nowadays leave high school, leave their church, and leave their spiritual roots, and many times don't come back. And many people are tempted to indict the church for its failing, and I totally reject that indictment. Youth do not fall away because of something that happens in college. Youth fall away because their bags were already packed in high school. Their hearts had already departed, and college simply revealed that departure. In 2013, Larry Trotton in the Atlantic Magazine gave a host of reasons that kids leave their faith. And the study included all of them that had religious backgrounds, church upbringings, and the two most prominent was that they... They felt that the mission and message of their childhood churches was vague. So the mission and message of their childhood churches was vague. And their churches offered superficial answers. That's why I reject that. You let a kid leave here. He's not leaving Hope Point because our mission and our message was vague. We've done everything we can to be not vague. And I'm probably the most transparent, non-superficial pastor these kids will ever sit under. I've done everything but say at times that life sucks. Because that would be inappropriate. (laughs) But I've tried to be transparent and say that life is very hard. Nothing superficial about this church. We're growing together very honestly in a very real, very clear Message, college is a great opportunity for growth. You go get a degree, get training, go make a lot of money and go get to buy the company and life is great. (laughs) But college also introduces you to an animal. An animal we'll call rebellion. And it all seems tameable at first. And every kid thinks, I'll just feed it a little bit at first. And then after a while, the animal grows larger than the student And no longer does the student control the animal, but the animal controls it. Next week, 
we're going to look at a text. The one who speaks to you next week is going to look at a text. It will include Paul's admonition where he tells the Ephesian elders. He says to the church, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. What a better admonition for these students today. We're sending you out as sheep among wolves. And the wolves on college campus or in secular culture will try to take away your belief in God and will try to persuade you that the world was created by chaos and the world is living in chaos. And the Bible, which we have taught here for these 16 years, says the world was created by an orderly God. The world was cursed as a result of man's rebellion And at the present time, Jesus Christ has entered into human history to reverse the curse. There are really only two worldviews, and that is Christ or chaos. And that's why we gave the students the book today, so they can see how apologetics will help secure their confidence that Christianity does offer a very rational Belief that the world was not created, nor is run by chaos. British author Dorothy Sayers, I love this quote. She says, it is fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of feeling. We just feel good today. No, it is vitally necessary to insist that it is first and foremost a rational explanation of the universe. And so that's what apologetics does. It It works alongside the scripture to show how rational the Bible is in explaining the reason and the origin of of the universe. And it does require thought, apologetics. Reading a book like this requires, I have read this thing from cover to cover a number of times and I'm telling you, it's a sentence by sentence read where you are puzzled after you read and say, I'm not sure exactly what he just said, I'll read it and stay on it for maybe an hour or two till I figure it out. But that's why I wanted to preach this today to give you some motivation. Read the book because as C.S. Lewis says, if Christianity is false, it is of no importance. But if it is true, it is infinitely important because it tells you how to connect with God. But if it can't be proven, if it's not true, Christianity offers nothing for Anyone, you can be sure that those that are in the atheistic world are right now zeroed in targeting these kids, these precious lives that were on this stage a minute ago. They are being targeted by atheistic forces to undermine the theistic beliefs that they embrace right now. I, the, I could mention many books, but... These two books right now are, are books that are, are used on college campuses right now. A Manual for Creating Atheists and 50 Simple Questions for Every Christian. These are books that are used on college campuses written by atheists in order to destroy the faith of young believers as they enter their freshman year on college campuses. So you, you need to understand these kids are walking into a place where attacks are coming Big time. And they're, it will take a month or two months in classrooms and conversations for them to say, 
do I really believe what I, I thought I believed that Sunday in, on May 5th? It's coming. And apologetics is a, is a help. If you take the time to say, I'm going to bolster my faith by, by reading, most people say no. I'm just, Christianity is not worth thinking about. Dan DeWitt who wrote this book and who basically wrote this sermon. <laughs> and, and hopefully he'll get some book sales out of the sermon. Dan DeWitt says, I'm concerned that many Christians are content to hunker down in Christian echo chambers and ignore the broader cultural conversations about faith in God. They treat the gospel as a fragile heirloom that should be covered in bubble wrap hidden in the attic because it cannot handle the test of hard Questions by atheistic culture. I believe there are two major reasons for an atheistic worldview. Number one, people really just don't want to deal with God. In a sense, we live in a culture where people just really don't want there to be a God. They, that's why they're so adamant on, on embracing atheism. They don't want there to be accountability. We love our own sovereignty we love our own turf. Well, we don't want anybody infringing on our turf. There are really only two responses on earth as a human being. You either live in adoration of God or you suppress all evidences of God. Adoration or suppression are the only two ways to live on earth. And suppression is the choice of the atheists because they're hoping for a world in which they will not be held accountable because they want to live how they want to live. <clears throat> James Spiegel wrote a book, says the making of an atheist, how immorality leads to unbelief. This is why atheism flourishes because it will not stop the persuasions of the body toward immorality. It's always a moral thing, not an intellectual thing. Doug Wilson says it quite well. There are two tenets of true atheism. One, there is no God. Two, I hate him. <laughs> a second reason the atheistic worldview exists is because people are very frustrated with the mystery of God in regard to suffering. We share that frustration as believers. We're very honest about that. Atheist, atheistic culture believes that if God were God, he would stop all evil. And they just throw that out there to the students who are on the stage and said, your God, if he were good, would stop all evil. And we, any sane person wants all evil to go away like now. I do. But I realize that if all evil were to go away now, I have to go away now. So it's a little more complicated than that. If God just stops all evil today, he stops all of us today from doing anything. We'll talk a little bit more about God's response to evil and suffering in a moment. Let me just say right now, bluntly, that atheism exists in order to rule out God. It's the reason that it exists. It is a way to rule out God. What I want to share today, if you rule out God, there are three things. You have to go to three beliefs. If you rule out God as creator, 
There is no God. There is no creator. Then you have to embrace three values, three worldviews, sub-worldviews under the major worldview of there is no God, and these are big. The first is, if there's no God, matter is eternal. It wasn't created. If there's no God, matter has always been here. It's always existed. It's always been around. In his book, A Universe from Nothing, Lawrence Krauss says, there has always been a bubbling brew of virtual particles. He's an atheist. This is his explanation of the universe. He says he can't explain why there was a bubbling brew of virtual particles and how they organize themselves into the complex nature of what we call the universe, but he says that's his response. Didn't know why, where they came from and how they got organized. So what we want our students to know is they don't have to believe that. There's scientific evidence. The universe had a beginning. Alexander Friedman, he took Einstein's theory of relativity and showed that using Einstein's math that the universe is expanding. If the universe is expanding, it means it started. And it was simple math. Einstein didn't love it at first when he realized that's where it went. But everybody's in agreement with Friedman. He was a German mathematician and he's Everybody agrees he's correct. Universe is expanding. And second, these two guys, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, they got a Nobel Prize in 1986 for discovering something called cosmic microwave background radiation, which is basically the gun residue when you fire a pistol. That's how cops find the bad guys. When there's a, a gunfire, there's powder left over and this cosmic background microwave radiation is all over the universe signifying there was a blast a long time ago and it's all over the universe signifying boom something happened something began great energy was exerted and they received a nobel prize for that now christians are not surprised that people came up with these answers are we because the bible says in the beginning was the word. You see the difference between biblical Christianity and atheism is atheism starts with eternal matter. Christianity starts with an eternal mind. And out of that eternal mind comes eternal matter. One starts with matter, one starts with mind. Christianity is always regarded as being irrational, out of date. Christianity for 6,000 years has simply been waiting for science to catch up. It said this 6,000 years ago, there was a beginning, and now science agrees with Christianity. There was a beginning. Now, if you say that matter is eternal, you have two more considerations that come out of that that are also not very encouraging. Number two, matter is impersonal. If matter is eternal, wasn't created by God, the second belief about matter is it's impersonal. It wasn't created by a person. 
matter lacks personhood. Duke University professor, which represents many professors that will influence the children on this stage, Alex Rosenberg says, things like personhood, human significance, and the ability to make meaningful decisions and moral distinctions are all illusions. There's no such thing as personhood. You may feel like a person, uh, you do exist, but you're just a random collection of atoms. A person did not create you, therefore you have no personhood. You're not different than anybody else. Random collection of atoms, number one. Random collection of atoms, number two. No personhood exists because you're not created by a person. You're random if matter is eternal. Matter is also impersonal. There's a problem in this approach. It simply doesn't add up. Jennifer Fulweiler, she wrote a book, memoir, Something Other Than God. It really is her memoirs of how she came to Christ. In an interview based on, on her memoir, she said everything changed for her when she had a baby. She was raised in an atheistic, secular household, never went to church. And one day she was holding her baby. Actually, it was in the hospital. And she looked and she said, if it's true, matter is eternal, matter is impersonal, what I'm holding is a random collection of atoms, not a person. What I'm feeling is not love. It's a random collection of chemical reactions. And I knew this is not the truth. I knew that what I was feeling was love, and I knew who, what I was holding was a person. And this led her, led her to Christ. But if you do not believe in personhood, Um, random collection of atoms. It's going to be very difficult to think that anybody has any value. Richard Dawkins has the courage to admit that. At the un there's no matter is eternal, matter is impersonal. No one cares about you out there. If atheism is true, and I appreciate. I appreciate the honesty of Dawkins. In a universe of blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If atheism is true, if matter is eternal, matter was not created by someone, no one cares about you. The universe is indifferent to you. It has to because matter, eternal matter, is also impersonal matter. But it's very interesting. Atheists are very uncomfortable with saying that personhood doesn't exist. They're very uncomfortable saying that values don't exist. Even existentialists say, well, just make up your own values. And then you say, but there's no rational basis for the values you made up. Why did you choose those values? And they say, I don't know. 
Just take a blind leap of faith and embrace your preferred value system while admitting your values have no value. If matter is eternal, if matter is impersonal, there are no real value systems. You simply fabricate your own significance. You can choose to feel significant if you want. I'm significant. That's a feeling. You're not. You can choose to feel that way, but you're not. Third conclusion of an atheistic worldview is matter is irrational. If our brains are just one more accident in a string of accidents, then we have to say our, bra- our brains, our minds are... <clears throat> are just mindless outcomes of all of these accidents. And therefore, it is impossible to trust the rationality of random collections of atoms that came together to form a brain. If matter is eternal, matter is impersonal, matter is irrational, then our brains, our thinking is untrustworthy. You cannot trust what you think about anything, but nobody, neither atheist nor secularist, will buy that. They say, no, we do live in a world where every day we make choices, say, no, my brain, my mind, my thinking is trustworthy. And they're correct, it is. We make decisions proving our brains are trustworthy, proving that they are not irrational. You can go to college and major in molecular biology because you have a brain that can figure it out because your brain was designed by a rational being who designed molecules. So an atheistic worldview regarding the universe makes this conclusion. It is the result of mindless forces Coming together, it is governed by no one, and it is going nowhere. But atheists, secularists, don't like that. So you've got atheists like Julian Baghini who says, although there is one kind of stuff in the universe, and it is physical, only physical, out of this stuff comes minds, beauty, Emotions, moral values, in short, the full, I think that's gamut, the full gamut of phenomenon that gives richness to human life. And again, he cannot give an explanation of where all of this comes from. He just says, from impersonal, eternal, irrational matter comes beauty, emotions, and moral values, simply because he chose to pick it. In the middle of the game, he changes the rules. If the universe doesn't care, why do we care? No atheist can explain that. What is our, who can explain our longing for beauty? Malcolm Muggeridge, British journalist, was, was a hard and fast atheist, but on a trip to India, South India, and the tea plantations and the 
coffee plantations and the rubber trees and the mountains and the trees and the rivers. He said he was so overwhelmed with beauty that he grew tired of the fantasy ideas that there could not be a God. And it was the concept of the overwhelming surrounding of God and beauty that caused him to first consider giving his life to God. And he did eventually come to Christ. The ebb and flow of human history is governed by a moral compass. Splendor and goodness appears to defy scientific explanation. Artistic and moral beauty are woven in the universe. And neither the secularist nor the atheist can give an account. Those things imply a personal and powerful source. And this is the wonder of the Bible. It speaks where science is silent. Science tells us much. Praise God. The Bible tells us more. And that's why I beg you over and over again, young people, all graduates and VCOM students and all of us, it's why we just preached through and are preaching through the book of Ephesians and we prayed that prayer. Paul said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that when you go to college to counter all of the secularistic, atheistic thinking, you would read the Bible because it is, it is the eyeglasses through which you see the reason for beauty and morality, creation, purpose, and eternity. Through the eyeglasses of Scripture, your eyes will be, will be opened. People love beauty and justice because they're created by someone who loves beauty and justice. The song of the Creator is broadcast throughout all of the world. Science, scientists can tell you how flowers grow. They cannot tell you why they please you when you look at them. John Lennox says this, science can tell you that if you put strychnine in someone's tea at your table, they will die. But science cannot tell you that you should not put strychnine in someone's tea at your table. Cannot tell you anything about morality. It would seem much more rational for the atheist to consistently live with the claim that everything about our value system are just mere illusions, but they won't do that. They know that beauty is real. Morality is real. Justice is real. They can't explain it. They can't explain why we care when a young man goes into Sandy Hook Elementary School and guns down 26 young lives, they can't understand why collectively we care in a universe that shouldn't care. Why do we care when a gunman rents a room in Las Vegas and guns down 52 people enjoying a country concert? Why do we care? Why do we cry out for justice? Why are we still aching to know? Why do you do it? What's happening? What does the FBI know? We want justice. Why do we care in a universe that says we shouldn't care? If it was, 
If, if, if matter is eternal, matter is impersonal, matter is irrational, why do we care? In the atheistic world imagined by Richard Dawkins, we should not be offended by these things. Either there is a world birthed out of chaos, governed by no one, cares about no one, and is headed nowhere, or the world has been created by a moral source upon humanity can rely to bring meaning out of suffering. So what does the Bible say about suffering, pain? What does the Bible tell us about God? First, the Bible tells us that God is wise and beautiful and holy. C.S. Lewis, that was one of the verses I put in the original verse that I read today was Psalm 19.1. C.S. Lewis says Psalm 19 is the most beautiful poem in all of history because it describes the beauty of God in creation and the beauty of God in his love of moral law. God is wise and God is beautiful and God is holy. The second thing the Bible tells us is that God is loving and God is sacrificial and God is triumphant. And all of those are seen when the Bible does its best to shine the spotlight of every single page on the person of Jesus Christ. This is why your Christian belief is rational because of Jesus. It is, Dan DeWitt said, it is intellectually irresponsible to ignore Jesus. He has made too big a dent in the history of ideas, has staked too audacious claims, and has too widespread an influence. You just cannot ignore Jesus. The Bible teaches that God is an eternal person. There is an eternal mind through Jesus Christ that has visited his creation. The word became flesh, the greatest words in all of Scripture. The mind, the creator, came down, walked in our world, let the world hurt him. The mind, the great mind, let the world hurt him, let the world kill him. And yet the answer for Scripture is the world could not keep the mind dead. Mark chapter 16, verse 6, the other greatest words in Scripture. He is risen. No greater claim in all the world than Jesus rose from the dead. It's the foundation for all legitimate human optimism is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please read this book by Jim Wallace. He was an atheist. He was a detective, and he simply investigated the facts of the resurrection as any cold case detective would look at the facts and I love the quote in his book where he says, the resurrection is reasonable based on the facts. If Jesus rose from the dead, changes everything, his words are forever validated. There's no saving anybody. Christianity loses everything if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And it's one of the most easily proven facts in all of history. 
Do you know why people find the resurrection difficult to believe? Because it's only happened once in human history. It is an unusual event. Only one time in 6,000 years has one man been killed, buried, risen from the grave, never to die again. Only once. And that's what makes Jesus Christ so unique and so hopeful. The resurrection is a horribly inconvenient fact for those who try to dismiss it. Look, we just celebrated resurrection. We just celebrated Easter. Just think about what we just celebrated. Just think about the thing. These are the things that we know even outside of the Bible about Jesus Christ. He received the capital punishment, sentence of death from Pontius Pilate. Outside of the Bible, we know that. Outside of the Bible, we know that thousands of people claimed they saw him alive. Outside of the Bible, we know that the early church, composed of Jews, after 4,000 years of worshiping chose to, on Saturday, chose to start worshiping on Sunday. We know, outside of the Bible, and along with the Bible, that for some reason, Jews who for 2,000 years had 39 books they considered as the Word of God, added 27 books to it and accepted it as the Word of God, the New Testament. All because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things happened. You have to account for the billions of lives that had been transformed over 21 centuries because of their witness that the resurrected Christ has changed every aspect of their life. The resurrection of Christ is a massively inconvenient truth. Christian, Christians are often accused of possessing an irrational optimism but our optimism about the future is intensely rational. For it is grounded in a promise that was validated in the historical events of the incarnation and resurrection. One of the great proofs of the existence of God is our optimistic spirit as people. Everybody believes that there's a somewhere that's going to be better. Why do we believe that? Why is it written in us? Everybody believes that there's going to be someone to come rescue us from this world. If the world is, if matter is eternal, matter is impersonal, matter is irrational, if the universe doesn't care, why universally? Are people looking for someone, somewhere, at some time? Why do they believe that a better story is coming? Why do they believe in the supernatural? But the atheist who says there is no God is left without hope. For the atheist, here's the end of history. The sun will continue to burn up all of its nuclear fuel, turn into a red giant, and then burn up earth. The end. Rule out God, and this is where you are. 
But there's a stubborn human habit, almost universal, that people are holding out that someone somewhere might save the day. And we live with this aching and we can't shake it off. We can't, it w- can't let go of it. God will not die. And when the big challenges and sorrows come in your life, you're going to turn to something. Bertrand Russell, how hopeless is this? The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of universe and ruins. Contrast this with this beautiful statement by Dan DeWitt. The gospel offers an explanation for the world we live in, a remedy for the suffering we face, and the hope of a future place where all things will eventually work together for good and where our greatest foes, sin, death, and the grave, will be forever vanquished. The disciples saw him who rose from the dead and believed that he was coming back to make all things new. So, two choices. One story begins in chaos and in, one story begins in chance and ends in chaos. Another story begins with the word and ends in life. Which will you believe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the beauty that is a part of our life daily. Thank you for the color that we see in the sky, on each other's clothes, in each other's eyes. Thank you for the way that music reverberates on, in our ears, our eardrums, and makes its way to our brains and our souls. Thank you for the beauty we experience through the food we eat and the love of those that we eat the meal with. Thank you, eternal mind, that you became flesh to calm and taste our sorrows. Thank you that you know every pain of everyone in this room. You've let the world hurt you, hate you, reject you. And you triumphed. The world suffers because it has rejected your laws, O holy God. The world suffers because it has hated your precepts, eternal mind. Yet you, O kind and gracious, generous Christ, offered your blood to forgive us of our rebellion, to free us from the mouth of the monster of rebellion, to make us alive when we were dead, to give us our mind back, to give us our eyes back, to give us our soul back, to give us back our future and our hope. 
all because you rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead as well. As we cling to your robes, as we cling to your hand, as we listen for your voice, we're grateful the grave will instantly let go of us to the one who conquered it. The voice of the one who reigns above all powers and authorities, the voice of the one who is seated on the throne of God and whose feet rest on the necks of all the powers of evil. Yes, we thank you for the rationality, the explanation, the clarity of humankind, of creation, of morality, of beauty, of purpose, of eternity, of love, of safety, of forgiveness, of hope that's found in Jesus Christ. Would someone today leave their doubts and by faith say, I'm coming to Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen.